Welcome to episode 165. I am your host, Alpha Mike, and today's episode you are listening to Cigar, Rusty, and Bananas. We will take another dive at the Bonanno crime family, and we will discuss what these two characters, the Cigar and Rusty, how did they end up bosses of the family, some by prior administrations, the other one by commission order. Nobody really understood who was in charge. And the Bonanno family would spiral out of control for over a decade. So I I did take a first episode, I can't remember the number, but I'll put it on the show, uh, show notes. We took a dive at the Bonanno family, and uh, we spoke about Joe Bonanno and the beginning of the family, but today we're going to uh, spend some extra time talking about some of the other uh, bosses that came after, and... Uh, from a disciplined family, it kind of started spinning out of control. All right, so we got a lot to talk about with those subjects. As you know, we're doing the Wise Guys series all the way up until January. Kind of hard to compete with the ongoing election that will never end as they're, and they're still counting ballots and now it's uh, voting machines and uh, deleted, didn't delete, it erased it, it brought it back, it didn't go. <clears throat> so when you were a kid, probably as I was on the playground, when there was ever a rule dispute, kids solved it so simple by calling it a do-over. That was it. Just did the whole thing all over again. And everybody went home happy. But it's not going to be any do-overs here. It's a little complex system. But at least I am getting a little more light at the end of the tunnel. Yep, sure am. So as you know, we're on two platforms now, RaiderCopNation.com. That's our website. We've been there forever and a day, about three years now. And RaiderCop.com. RaiderCop will show you all our podcasts. RaiderCop Nation will show you our website with a little bit more details. We've uh, chopped away at all the Bolshevik social media networks out there, leaving three, Twitter with the handle being Raider Cop Nation, uh, Parlor, with the handle being Raider Cop, and Facebook, with the handle being Raider Cop Nation. Now, we're starting to bring in some new kids. They're new to the social media networks, and from the cry of the conservative band out there, the victims, the over 73 million victims have been screaming about Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Instagram's got a huge a lawsuit on its hands that if it loses, boy, that's going to put a cripple in Facebook. They've been doing face recognition with uh, the pictures that people post. And uh, it was not a part of the disclaimer. And the lawsuit is claiming $500 billion. So you might say, well, they're not going to give them, they're not going to do that to them. Well, I don't know. 73 million Americans are fed up with the bull and they're jumping ship. As a result, we are on three new social media content, MeWe, and it's down on the bottom of the show notes, 
And that looks probably about the best. And this looks like the competitive Facebook, this MeWe. And you can find us um, on there as well, Raider Cop Podcast. And um, Al Martinino. Now, that's M-A-R-T-I-N, like Martin, Eno, I-N, excuse me, M-A-R-T-I-N-I-N-O, just like that. And, uh, of course, Radio Cop Podcast. Then we're also on Wimkin. That sounds a little, little Chinese to me, but we're on there, too. And you can look us up on the group of uh, Raider Cop podcast as well. And Rumble, which is the competition to YouTube. It's all on the bottom of the show notes, and you can follow us there. You know, uh, this past weekend, a lot of people were demonstrating, hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating in regards to the election. And a couple of troublemakers came out from other organizations and started attacking people. Totally despicable. And, uh, you know, the media can say whatever they want, but three, four hundred thousand Trump supporters were out in force. Nothing was looted. Nothing was burnt down to the ground. But these Antifa characters and Black Lives Black Lives Matter uh, characters are out there. And uh, they come out usually after dark, you know, 6 p.m., and they started attacking people. So I left a bitter taste in a lot of um, individuals um, because nothing is sacred anymore. So the left is not tolerant. They don't want to hear your opinions and quite frankly, if your opinion is different than theirs, they want to shove their fist in your face. Now, let's get one thing straight. On the Trump side, these are probably the group with the most warriors, veterans and uh, active and retired law enforcement and so forth. And I would venture that the day the Antifa groups start pushing the buttons over there and there's a reaction uh, Antifa's going to get their ass kicked so keep on poking at the bear after a while it's going to growl at you and we live in troubled times as you know and now's the time don't wait till tomorrow to become a member of the USCCA. Memberships are, are, premiums are very low from $22 to beginning or the lower end of the membership. $30 is your middle range and $47 being the high end. 350,000 people have joined the ranks of the USCCA. Protection while carrying a gun is important. You train, you train on how to shoot the thing under pressure, how to take the weapon out of your holster. You do all that, but you forget to get protection, legal protection, because God forbid you do have to take that gun out of your holster. The lawsuits are coming. And I definitely recommend the USCCA. It's as easy as texting from your smartphone, 87222-87222, the word Raider, R-A-I-D-E-R, and you are on the first steps to becoming a member of the USCCA. We also have a link down on the bottom of the show notes, the logo that shows you the USCCA. Just click on that and that'll take you to the membership page. We are an affiliate of the USCCA, and we are proud to be an affiliate. Test Everything 1521 and continues to go out every week, just as this podcast is going to be launched out. Well, the episode that I read about the word of the week, 
I'll explain that text that I read 15 minutes or less. It's only going to take of what a little bit more in detail was that I read during the podcast. It's for your spiritual development. We can train all day shooting guns and holstering them and taking them out of the holster and shooting on targets. But spiritually, we need to be prepared too because the Bible says the times are troubled. So we need to keep that in mind. All right? So test everything 1521. Go to com and look up at the section that says test everything. Now it's time for the word of the week. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by forth force. Matthew eleven twelve. As I said, you can learn more about what I just read by uh, listening to that podcast, 15 minutes or less, for your spiritual development on Raider Cop Nation. It's also on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Just look up Test Everything 1521. Well, we got a lot to talk about with this episode and uh, the cigar, Rusty, and the bananas. And we're going to talk about how an organization that was structured, disciplined, and effective spiraled out of control 30 year, thirty plus years later. So, let's get those clowns. <laughs> Episode 165, Cigar, Rusty, and Bananas. We are going to discuss the banana crime family before and the spiral out of control that occurred late 60s, early 70s, part of the 80s. And even to this day, they might be spinning continuously still. And we start off with uh, with our cigar character, which is Carmine Camillo. The cigar was his nickname, Galante, born February 21st, 1910, New York City. And Rusty, Philip Rusty Restelli, born January 31st, 1918, in New York City. He was part of what would be considered the Young Turks or the Banano family when it was time for his ascension. The Banana Wars, and there's where we get the, the, the ingredient in the name. The Banana Wars lasted from 1964 to 1968, and um, over a dozen people mobsters and the, and the Banano family were killed. And uh, even 1969, even though the war ended, there was still a split in the organization, so they were still blasting it out amongst themselves. Now, at the time, the underboss to all this, and I'm going to give you a little backdrop of what we're going, Joe Banano is the leader Oh, or the boss of the Banano crime family. Remember that our dates, we always go to 1931, the year that the commission was formulated officially. 
and uh, the commission had, of course, been created by Maranzano, and probably in the 1930. And uh, we know that Lucky Luciano and the boys got rid of Maranzano, and they took over. Well, they adopted the commission ruling. Prior to the commission was the National Crime Syndicate, and that was done through a, a conference or a convention in Atlantis City, 1929. So our dates are always going to be 1931, which is the date that the commission was created. And the underboss at the time uh, of this episode that we're going to be talking about is Gaspar de Gregorio. And a little bit more about him in a minute, but I mention him because he was a key player that really didn't do anything. A lot of people had expectations, and if he would have done something creative, probably 12 people wouldn't have died and it wouldn't have spun out of control the way it did. But Joe Bonanno took over the family of course, awarded by Lucky Luciano in 1931. At the age of 27, Joe Bonanno is given the family. He rules it. Now we're into 1964. So he's been at the helm for 33 years. The Bonanno family had the distinction at that time, 1964, not to have one single informant or rat within the ranks of the Bonanno family. They were sophisticated at some point. They were earners at some point. They were strict by the code of the mafia. And their ranks were very close-knit. And that is probably one of the reasons there was no snitching or anything like that. Of course, for Joe Valachi comes out in mid-60s, and he does mention Joe Bonanno. They asked him, well, who inducted you in the mafia? And he says Joe Bonanno was a complete lie because Joe, of, uh, Joe Valachi, he came out of the Luciano family, which is today the Genovese family. But uh, it was later determined that the FBI told Valachi, you know, they would just put notes in front of them. You got to memorize this. You got to say this and that kind of stuff. So Joe Bonanno now, we're looking at this episode. He starts to have a little bit of concern with the commission. He had been there for 30, uh, close to 33 years now. And maybe at some point he had the chairmanship of the commission, but he's not really concerned overall with running the commission that he is concerned with what he calls in his book, A Man of Honor, the uh, liberal wing of the commission coming in. So Bonanno describes himself in Provacci as being the conservative wing of the commission and that when Carlo Gambino came aboard with Tommy Lucchese they represented the liberal wing <clears throat> so uh, there is a distinction and that was one of the reasons why Bonanno now wanted to take a little more aggressive position or posture on the commission and uh, he felt that the timing was right in the 60s. Uh, Col uh, Carlo Gambino took over what was the Anastasia family, if you remember, that was our episode in, in 164. And Carlo Gambino now comes in in 57. Remember the liberal wing very close ties to Tommy Lucchese. In fact, Lucchese's daughter will 
end up marrying uh, Carlo Gambino's son. So through the liberal wing, that was concerning the banana because it was only him and Pravacci, and Pravacci was of ill health in the 60s. And if memory serves me correctly, he died in 62. So the war, the Bonanno War, starts in 64. Bonanno is really concerned now, doesn't have a real ally on the commission. And he distrusted the liberal wing, and he knew that they would try to consume his family. So he came up with a plot with uh, the Provaci family. Remember, Joe Provaci dies, Malagraco, which was their underbosses, elevated to boss. And Bonanno tells him, look, we need to take out Carlo Gambino and Tommy Lucchese. We'll have him replaced. And uh, Provaci or um, Malagraco agrees, but he gives the assignment to Joe Colombo, which was a couple in the Provaci family. And uh, Colombo, as we had said in previous episodes, decides to tell Carlo Gambino everything. As a result, the plot is revealed, Bonanno goes on the run, and Malagraco is uh, forced to step down has to pay restitution, I believe it was a $50,000 fine, and he's pretty much just put on the shelf and told to go away. And Joe Colombo, for being a good rat, was awarded the Provaci family, and Gambino made sure that that would be carved in history by changing the name of the Provaci family to the Colombo family. But these were reasons why Banana was trying to make a move. Even though the plot was revealed, the actions of Gambino to award the family to somebody that was just a mid-level couple, he would show you, it's a good indicator, that he had very little respect for the Pravaci family, which was torn up with constant wars with the gallows and the gallo wars and we discussed those and he would just award the family to a middle level capo and say well it's all yours go ahead and run it so Bonanno had a, a reason also his uh, cousin which was the boss of the Buffalo, New York gang, Magandino, Stefan Magandino, was a thorn in his side. Now, most likely Bonanno just ran away and was on the lamb hiding because he knew that they were going to try to have him killed for the revealing of the plot. So what he ends up doing... Uh, hiding out for a couple of years. It did not go well with the troops. They became very upset in the Bonanno family because they felt that he was hiding out while they were shooting it out. There was a lot of um, deception in the family of taking over because of that absence. And a lot of other families were taking over territories. You know, when, when you're fighting a war, there has never been a war from one family against another after 1931 because of the commission. The only wars that have occurred are internal wars from families. Primarily two families have, have gone through this and that's the Columbos that they had a set of three internal wars and the Bananos that had one that uh, probably in the area of uh, 12 to 20 people were killed on both sides. On, on the Columbos, over 20 in those three wars. 
and uh, on the banana side for those four years that they were warring, about 12 died. And uh, a lot of that is because the commission is an effective tool in putting out a lot of fires. But Gambino now is going to put that pressure on Banano. Banano uh, turns up uh, at a courthouse in New York several years later with his lawyer saying, I, I was told that the federal government was looking for me. And his story was that his cousin, Stefan Magandino, had kidnapped him. Well, not too many people believed it. And, um, but Banana was an original. He was a founding member. There was nothing really that the other mob bosses were going to do other than uh, become chatterboxes. Not because they didn't have the ability to do it, but no families were going to go to war against each other on a, situs, on a situation such as this. So Gambino's idea was to put pressure on Banana to leave. And he did. In 1968, Banano has a heart attack and he decides to retire. And his book, The Man of Honor, he says that he retired from the, the life since 1931. Now, he, had, you know, he goes back prior to that to about, I think, early 26, 1926 or something. So he, he hangs up uh, his retirement gloves. But there's a difference between being retired and being shelved. Shelved means that you can't have any commitment or any business with any member of the mob. Pretty much is that they ran you out, they threw you out of here, they got rid of you. And uh, as punishment, you're not to have any affiliation with any associates, or soldiers, capos, or bosses in any family. Can't even use names or anything. It's like you don't even exist. But when you retire, you really, do, you know, you can do whatever you're going to do. You can't be retired and not retired. It doesn't exist. Most of the guys that are retired, they'll go to a retirement community like Florida or Arizona or something like that. And for the most part, they'll get involved maybe in their local communities where they're relocated to something. But it's nothing major, nothing big deal. And remember, they always got connections because they're retired. They, they stay in contact with these uh, made members. And they always are a main member. So the big difference between the two of the commission's view was that they shelved Bonanno. But uh, in an interview that Bonanno was asked that question, he said he retired, that the commission did not have the authority to shelve a boss. So he's partly right on that. They didn't. You couldn't kill a boss. You couldn't shelve a boss. So when he spoke of the liberal wing, this is what he was very fearful of, Bonanno was, that they would just make up bruises to go along. But you could not shelve, shelve a boss. He'd step down. You should, a lot of these family feuds that were occurring, the commission should not have been involved in those things either. But they were trying to gain position. And as a result, all this uh, has occurred. So the commission now, they're going to set the underboss, which is Gaspar de Gregor, and they're going to put him as the boss. He flip-flops too much. He's not really, he's in a bad situation. He doesn't like what he's in the middle of. And he served Bonanno for so long that when Bonanno went off the radar, off the grid, it made him very uncomfortable because he knew that his boss 
was very effective. As a result, he only lasted two years. The commission became so frustrated with him, they knocked him off and started appointing other bosses. Now, I'm not going to get in the weeds with who they appointed and when and what dates and what they did and what car they drove. Because I want to concentrate on these two that I have here. The commission is going to, through Carlo Gambino, are going to make an official appointment of Rusty Ristelli. Ristelli representing the Young Turks of the Bonanno family. Ristelli had been around for a good while now. He wasn't, uh, you know, a, a babe in the woods or anything like that. And he, again, represented crews that didn't have a voice in the Bonanno family. Now, when Banana was boss, mostly you had to come from Sicilian background to be in the Banano family. That was kind of tweaked later on, but he was probably one of the last families to allow others to come in. It was a close set mentality that he had. <clears throat> so Rostelli... He did a lot of his uh, business out in Queens. Queens was not a real, real big deal back then in the in the 40s and 50s and all that. So, Rostelli would be regarded as one of those young Turks. They were out there, they were earning, they were doing what they were doing, but they weren't, uh, let's just say, major league players at the time. So, the commission gives Rostelli the nod as similar to what Cambino had done with Colombo. He, he did not like very powerful bosses because Joe Bonanno describes Carlo Gambino in one of his interviews on 60 Minutes and in his book, uh, Man of Honor, that uh, Colombo was a nobody, he refers to him. So there was a huge issue that Bonanno did not give the respect to um, Gambino because he didn't have a lot of ring time under his belt, let's just say. That's how Bonanno regarded him. Yes, he knew who he was. Yes, he knew he was in the life. But at the end of the day, he looked and he goes, okay, is he supposed to instill fear? Albert Anastasia instilled fear. But uh, Provaci would instill fear. Even Bonanno would instill fear. Luciano, they would instill fear in people. But when you mentioned Carlo Gambino at the time, 1957, that wasn't not too many people were peeing in their pants. Now they knew that he, Gambino, was a negotiator, businessman. So as a result, you can get a fair shake. So he wasn't very intimidating to people. So this is one of the problems that placed the Bonanno family in that out-of-control spin because the commission's going to give the nod to Rusty. Rusty's in jail. And now here comes Carmine Galante. Okay? The cigar. The cigar just prior to the Banana Wars in the 50s, late 50s, was Joe Banano's underboards for a short time. And he was the official underboss, right? See how we're going to get in the weeds here now. And so when all this happens, the cigar, Galante, which is a person that instills a lot of fear in gangsters. They were fearful of him. He was an earner and he was a killer. Those are two traits. Galante would do a lot of work for Vito Genovese in the day. But Bonanno knew who he had. 
Bonanno had him on special assignments. He had sent him to Canada to create the Canadian mafia up there with Bonanno influence. He also sent Galante to Sicily to negotiate harrowing deals and to manage that. And he was a Bonanno enforcer that would go out and do business with other families. So when Carmen Galante, while did a 20-year run for heroin, he was incensed. One of the things that he did when he left prison was the day he got out of prison, he had Frank Costello's mausoleum at the cemetery they placed TNT sticks on it and they blew the hinges right off it he was letting the underworld know I'm out I'm I'm here and I'm in charge and it's exactly what he did he took over as soon as he hits the streets the coppos and the banano family started giving him alliances and allegiances because Rusty, number one, was in jail. Number two, they weren't going to mess with him. They're everybody, he had 20 years in the, in, the, in the slammer. He was nuts, and he had a reputation. So everybody just went to flow. And Cara and Galante flaunted his uh, power. But during the era that Carmine Galante took over the Bonanno family, of course, we had Joe Pistone and the agent of the FBI that had infiltrated the Bonanno family. And you might have seen the movie of uh, Donnie Brasco. And as a result of that, that um, would give the Bonanno family another black eye and another spin out of control for decades as uh, that little indiscretion with the other families. But after the banana wars were coming down, uh, Galante, he is of the rule now that my sitting boss, Joseph Bonanno, appointed me underboss. He retired in 1968 and I just got out of the can. And according to our rules, I'm the boss. Nobody else. Now, of course, the the official spin was he's just going to hold down the fort until Rusty gets out. Because the commission had appointed. Remember, this is territory that never any family has ever gone through. So Galante wasn't a complete Kaboof with this. He knew he had to tiptoe around some of the issues, and he did. But what he was telling the other families when he would say that is, and when Rusty comes out, we'll sit down, we'll discuss who's boss. Internal matters should not involve the commission and should be not involving other families. Uh, I, that meeting that I am aware of never happened, but if it would have, uh, Galante and Rusty that would have been interesting because one of them was going to leave in a pine box but because of Rusty's court cases that he had and a lot of things that were going to come his way he didn't have the ability to um, have that meeting because he was in the can, in the can. so as we know how it ends Carmine Galante 1979 the commission now puts the hit on him because he's dealing in heroin, masses amounts of heroin. And uh, the real truth be told, a lot of people were upset that they weren't getting their piece of the action from what he was making. And Carmine Galante, 1978, was so pissed off at the Gambino family, which prior to him going to to do a 20-year stint in prison was not known as the Gambino family. It was 
uh, the Anastasia family, or probably maybe even the Magdino Mag, Mag, family. But nevertheless, <clears throat> here he is now, and all the stuff that he had left in his heroin drug operations that were given to him pretty much by Bonanno that, you know, he said, well, I didn't know anything he was doing. But it was given to him on a silver platter back in the 40s. He went back and he didn't give me that. That's mine. He ends up killing eight made members in the Gambino family. So Car uh, Carmine Galante was nothing to sneeze at. The commission had had enough. Too much uh, noise was being seen in the media with eight dead bodies all over the place and him flaunting his nose at everybody. So the commission ordered that it be done. It was issued to Anello de la Croce, the underboss of the Gambino family, to organize it. And he promptly calls a couple of coppers over at the Bonanno family said, you guys are going to handle your own business. And with the helps of the Zips, which are the Sicilians, the imports, Carmen Galante had a lot of Zips surrounding him because he really, he had been gone for 20 years. He wasn't really confident with who was who. So he started to import Zips. And they were his bodyguards and stuff like that. The end result would be 1979. In uh, July of 1979, in Joe Mary's restaurant in Knickerbocker Avenue in Brooklyn. I remember it well. They went into the restaurant. Uh, men with sawed-off shotguns. Bang, bang, bang. By the time they were finished, Three members were dead on the floor, Carmine Galante being one of them. Galante died with his cigar in his mouth, and his eye was shot out, as well as his one of his members and one of his uh, couples that were with uh, him at that meeting that he had, was having at Joe and Mary's. Italian-American restaurant. That's what it was called. And it came out all over the news. All over the news. I remember as a kid back then. And, and I started to listen to the details. Now, a lot of people have asked, well, how in the world do you know all this stuff? All without revealing too much. Of course... I was fascinated at the subject from early on. But growing up as a kid, when I was in grammar school, I was a good friend of mine by the name of Chip. And uh, I get out of school, I go home. I was, a, I was allowed to go out after I did my homework. I do my homework in record time, hit the streets, tell my mom I'm going to, I'm going to Chip's house. Know, because Chip's parents wouldn't let him leave like, you know, 20 feet from the porch. But, it, you know, I go over there, we play stickball, whatever we would play. So this one time I'm sitting on Chip's stoop of his house, and a car pulls up. It's either a Cadillac or something similar to that. And there's two guys in the car. They pull up right in front of his house. And I don't know who they are, but as the guy goes to open his door, Chip runs down the steps to go help him out. So I go, well, he must know who he is, obviously, right? And um, the gentleman, older guy, I he, he had a leg that was favoring him. I didn't know what was exactly wrong with him, but he had to hold on to it as he exited, and he kind of wobbled a little bit as he walked and he spoke to Chip in Italian he was walking up the steps and uh, he said hello to me I said hello back and I didn't know who it was but you know I was 
showing courtesy. And as he walks away and goes inside the house, Chip goes, that's my mother. That's my mother, my mother's uncle. And I go, oh, okay. And she goes, he's in a mafia. I go, what are you talking about? He's in a mafia. He's bald. Uh, don't ask me. I was a kid. I don't know why I said that. But he looked he looked like an accountant to me, not a guy in the mafia. He goes, well, he's in the mafia. And I go, oh, all right. And I, I started to wonder, how can this guy be in a mafia? It's just not what I've seen on TV. So I, I'm, I'm having difficulty associating with it. Further conversation with Chip, he tells me his uncle's name is Frank. That's all, just Frank. Okay. So as time goes on, you know, weeks and days go on, I, through the neighborhood, I would go to certain places. Like if I go to the pizzeria to go get a slice. Back then, a slice was a quarter. <laughs> 25 cents. You can't get a napkin for 25 cents today. But it was 25 cents. So I go to the pizzeria. I go there once, and there he is. I see him. Now, I, I, I recall it was him. I see him, the bum leg, and he turns around. He sees me. He says, hi. I, I kind of froze a little bit and said, hi, back. He gets into the car, the car he had. He's not driving. Someone's driving him. And he leaves. A week later, I see him somewhere else. I see him at the diner. I lived in, in Queens back then, and on Junction Boulevard and Roosevelt, right there in the corner, there was a diner back then. I don't even remember what the name of it was. But, uh, you know, this thing was prehistoric. It's not there now, so don't even... I mean, that thing got torn up 30 years ago or more. But I walked into the diner because my dad had a business right across the street. Every once in a while, my dad would tell me, go to the diner, go get sandwiches, go get a, ha a hamburger or whatever. So I'm running, I run over there, go get the hamburgers at the diner. And I look, and there he is again. He's sitting in a booth. Uh, I'm waiting at the counter for the hamburgers to come, acting like I don't see him. And he glances at me and nods hello. I go, oh, said hello to me again. And I always found it fascinating. So now all of a sudden I got the gab. I got to tell the other kids in the neighborhood, I know a mobster. Oh, you know. And then I spotted him one day. Never The kids were with me and I go, look, him over there. He ain't no mobster. He's an old man. He's a mobster. And uh, what's his name? And I go, his name is Frank. Frank what? I don't know. They told me Frank. Okay. So one of the kids goes up to a couple of wise guys that would hang out in certain areas like Bella Chico's Bakery and the, the Pizzeria. Um, there was a couple of hangouts they had. And uh, it runs up to one, a bunch of the old guys that are hanging out outside and they go, hey, what's that guy's name over there? So one of the Italian guys goes, his name is Mike. He goes, you sure his name's not Frank? No, it's Mike. Everybody's got an Uncle Mike. So he's his name is Mike. They just made that up. But as kids, we called him Uncle Mike at that point. Because it sounded better than Frank. And Frank ended up being Frank Bonomo, which was a mobster in the Banana family. And I'll have a show about that a little bit in the, in the future. Um... But that was the beginning. I was, I mean, I was a kid. What was it? Maybe eight, nine, ten, and it got my curiosity. And you know, there was no Google back then. You couldn't Google things. You couldn't. You had to know the things. And I started learning them. Simple as that. And of course, when I got into law enforcement, I continued. And um, there were times that you know, people from organized crime would ask me certain questions if I knew. I remember once um, there was a hit in South Florida with a guy by the name of Napolitano and Albadando. He had killed a guy by the name of Albadando in the middle of the street. 
And as soon as that went down, I started putting the pieces of the puzzles together. And I made some necessary phone calls and because Napolitano was in custody. And he was denying and he wasn't talking. He wasn't saying he was anything um, mob-related. But I kept on pushing the button. This is mob-related. And shortly after, the FBI showed up and 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 told uh, uh, Miami-Dade what what actually we had in our hands, and that was that he, it was a mob-related hit. So I owed that because of just my general knowledge, and it grew and grew and grew. Of course, as out of everything, you got to keep up on. It's like baseball cards. You remember when you collected baseball cards? You had to know how to collect them. And if you stop collecting baseball cards for, let's say, four or five years, and then you want to start collecting again, it wasn't the same. So you had to keep up that skill set. All right, so let's wrap this up. So as Carmine Galanta gets rubbed out, now this leaves the books wide open for Rusty to come into play. Rusty is getting out of prison he was in the area of Maspeth, Queens. That was his area of dominance. He also lived in Corona, Queens. And uh, not too far away from what I just described. Because that was my neck of the woods where Frank Bonomo would be at as well. And Rusty runs the family, but he has in and outs with the law and in and outs with his health. He sets it up that his success is going to be Joe Messino. But it would be a little while before Joe could actually become uh, a boss because uh, Rusty was the boss on the books, even if he was in prison. As we've discussed before, being a boss and being in prison is very, very difficult, if not impossible, to run a family. And it was no different when Rusty was in that position. When Rusty does eventually die, which is in 1991, he, Joe Messino takes over of the family. Joe Messino is the guy that actually put the proposal in front of the commission in 1979 from the, of course, the behest of Rusty Rustelli, which was his capo. You know, he was his capo, and then he got sent to prison. And while he was in prison, the commission put Rusty in charge of the family. Massino becomes a capo. Massino now is going to do Rusty's bidding to the commission, asking for Galante, uh, his hit, and it is approved. It's approved because everybody wanted a man of. The pitcher it was too loud, too boisterous, and he was uh, knocking off members, made members like nothing. Like, like I said, eight, eight, ocho, made members in the Gambino family. He knocked out in one year in 1978 because they had something to do with his old heroin route, and it wasn't approved, so he got rid of him. Carmine Galante. We all know the the last fiasco in all this that Joe Messino, after Rusty dies, takes over the family. He will run the family very effectively from 1991 to 2004. He will close down all social clubs. He will not allow banana members to mention his name they had a point to their ear if they were talking about him that was to avoid FBI bugs and so forth and he would come up with a set of rules you had to be made You, you somebody had to know who you were you had to have family associated with you becoming a made member not just who's this guy because of the Joe Pistone issue with the FBI. So Messino puts 
the Ben Arnold family back on the map. The media dubs him the last Don. But during his era, the rats came out in full force, snitching on everybody, including Joe Messino. They nailed him with so many murders and so many things that Messina was looking at the death sentence. At the end, he says, I ain't dying. And he stood up and he told the government he had some things to talk about. He becomes an informant. So Joe Messino becomes the first sitting boss in mafia history to become an informant. <coughs> All this emerged from a family that for over 33, 34 years never had a snitch. Never had one thing out of place. But because of mingling from other families and other entities, it ran amok. Today, the boss is Michael Mancuso, and there's issues of with him when he took over the boss he had acting boss camarada they he shelved them because he didn't like the way he handled its court case if you ask me the spinning top is still spinning on the banano family we will continue in 2021 with some more stories on the bananas but they've always uh interest me now that being said, just to add a little bit more credence to what I'm talking about, my relative, I'm not going to give you this specificality, elderly woman now, she's probably 93, her last name is Bonanno, she was married to one. So, what's up next? The song of the week, we have It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas with Perry Cuomo. Oh, favorite. We got to get start to get into the Christmas spirit. And up next, episode 166, Lord High Executioner. As we start making a turn, we went from what is the Genovese family. We did a little pause today on the Bonanno family, but now we're going to start heading towards a new family, and we're going to talk about them in its entirety. Remember, Wise Guys series will continue to discuss all the way up until January. We're not competing with the election. We're not competing with the holidays. We're going to talk about Wise Guys stuff because that's what a lot of people like. Then in January, we go back to regular programming. We talk about guns and all that guy. I got my co-host back, and we're going to start kicking it up a notch. But in the meantime, the election is still counting. As always, it is my honor and pleasure to be your host on Radio Cop Podcast. Continue to pray for yourself, because without you in the game, we have nothing. Continue to pray for you, your family, the law enforcement agencies that serve you, and most importantly, for the United States of America. This is Alpha Mike, and I'm out.
Three, two, three. Four, three, two, three, 